turn in your Bibles with me and return again to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, we're in the middle of Paul's feisty polemic against these false teachers. Last week we looked at verses 16 to 17 and the dangers of legalism. Today we're going to look at verses 18 and 19 and the real, very real dangers of mysticism even in today's world. So I want to read those four verses together just to keep us in context here. So Colossians 2, verses 16 to 19. The word of the Lord says, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your eternal word, your pertinent word, your timely word. Father, I pray that the Spirit's illumination of this truth today will enlighten our hearts, Lord, to the great and glorious necessity of being bound, constrained, guided, taught, overseen by your word and its power, not only to save, but to sanctify and to lead us, to keep us, to guide us into your truth, Father. So I pray that you would bless our hearts, our minds, and transform us in this time together today. In Jesus' name, amen. You you may be seated. I want to start out with three scenarios. These are all real. I did a little sidebar research here just to dig into mysticism, what it means, what 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 do we how do we see this today? How is it expressed? What some call even Gnostic spiritualism. Is it just some freakish, outlandish, spiritual pursuit that no one in their right mind would really consider? Maybe not. So bear with me in these three scenarios. First one. Listening to a preacher on TV, not my regular activity, but hearing this man says that many Christians today actually incorrectly believe that everything God wants us to know has already been revealed in the Bible. This man claims that he receives from God words of fresh and new revelation all the time. He strongly convinces his audience that God is seeking to powerfully establish dominion on earth with only those who are overcomers, with only those who will help, and with only those who will submit to the authority of God's modern-day apostles. 
because he says it is these apostles who also now have direct contact with the spirit realm, and there is a unity between these apostles and the host of angelic beings that create a link by which these fresh revelations are conveyed. These are very essential for this man, these apostles and the church, to be guided into the dominion over all the earth. Okay? Stay with me. Second observation, second scenario here. Just browsing through an online bookstore, which I won't name, you probably know who I'm talking about, just in a matter of few minutes, here's titles from several authors. My Journey to Heaven, What Was Seen and How It Changed My Life. Proof of Heaven, written by a doctor who experienced the afterlife. 90 Minutes in Heaven, A True Story of Death and Life. Heaven is for Real, A Little Boy's Trip to Heaven and Back. To Heaven and Back by another doctor. Kind of makes you wonder about the medical profession. Another doctor's account of death, heaven, angelic interaction, and life again. Nine Days in Heaven, The Vision of Marietta Davis. And from another perspective... 23 minutes in hell, what one man saw, heard, felt, and experienced, and came back. These were just a snapshot, just about two or three minutes of browsing and writing these down. Third session or excerpt here. This is from a counseling session. No names here. This, this was an example. It's where a man tells the pastor, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is leading him to divorce his wife. Christian man. He has no grounds for divorce, but he says God has shown him that in this case, it is the right thing to do. The best thing in the long run, because he himself will be in what he thinks is a much better situation to serve the Lord. Everyone will benefit from it. And to top it off, everyone will be much happier. Because he says God is sovereign and he can bring good from much evil. And in the pastor's attempt to turn him to what Scripture actually says about this subject, he gets rejected and shot down. The man rejects the counsel because he says he understands what the Bible says, but his situation is truly unique. He is, is different. He, it is an exceptional situation. And he tells the pastor he must step out of his little world and expand his understanding to see what God intends to accomplish through this particular divorce. What's the common theme here? What's the common denominator? It's mysticism, or what I called earlier Gnostic spiritualism, an attempt to discover some type of deeper spirituality. It was described by another pastor so very well. He says, it is the belief that we can attain, that we can somehow reach to and experience an immediate knowledge of God in this life through just our personal experience. That somehow we can know God, we can know His will, we can even grow in our appreciation of God, not necessarily from His Word, but in this life apart from His Word and apart from His revelation to us through our feelings, through our emotions, through impressions that come upon us, and through our experience. 
that we can somehow attain immediate knowledge without the necessity of his word or revelation, that we can take part in this divine life merely through personal experience. And it's even interesting, if you look at the etymology of mysticism, it tells us that it has a primary meaning of, of inducing or initiating, uh, secondarily try to introduce as to make someone aware of something by a slight introduction, a, a rite of initiation. And this gives us some keen insight into what Paul is getting at in verse 18 and 19 of our text today. And it's key because verse 18 has been described as one of the most challenging verses to exegete, and it's one of the most contested in the New Testament. One small phrase in there, which we'll look at briefly. However, the difficulty only lies in in interpreting this and exegeting this in the ability to fully understand the exact detailed nature of what the false teachers were teaching, okay? Okay. We can clearly understand from the text what Paul's response is to the teachers and the warning given to believers about each aspect of this teaching. And we will see this as we dive into it. And thankfully, due to more recent discovery, there is a growing agreement by many scholars as to what this phrase actually means. But in our times, in in this age, in modern evangelicalism, it's drowning in mysticism. It's more than a fad. There, there's such an attraction to it. It's a given that, and the assumption that most Christians operate within, even in our day. And to gain this experientially based knowledge of God. But if you stop and, and ask, why, what makes this so attractive? What makes this so appealing to those who are not grounded in the Word? I thought of, of five real quick areas of, of why... We're so attracted to this. And think about this for a moment. It really sounds good. It appeals to our natural senses, to our egos. For you to be told that you could hear directly from God, that you can be, remember, closer to God, it's it's appealing because there's always within mankind, within our fallen nature, maybe even more so these days, There's a constant, almost incessant looking and longing for something extraordinary and spectacular. There's a a predominant desire in our society to experience that latest and greatest sensation. And this is one of them, mysticism. Second, we really place far too much emphasis on our feelings. We want to be moved. We want to be inspired. We want to be stirred to delight and emotional expression to know those, those electrically charged emotional feelings. We naturally want to extend and stir and move our senses. Just as a certain music, I hear something in a minor key, boy, I am stirred to the core. Just watching a beautiful sunset, the colors in the sky, a beautiful flower, those emotions stir us. But the danger The warning is that when we bring that desire into the realm of religion, we have to keep in view the difference between emotions and affections. What do I mean? How do you differentiate between the two? Isn't love both an emotion and an affection? Isn't hatred 
both an emotion and an affection? Is it joy, both an emotion and affection? Desire, fear? Why is it an emotion in one instance and an affection in another? The way we differentiate, our affections are always stirred through knowledge, through truth. By the Spirit of God, we comprehend God's truth through His Word. And it is as this light dawns upon our minds and engages our hearts, we're able to respond rightly. It's, it's where truth dawns upon the soul. And our very real danger is to seek to have our emotions tweaked and stirred so that we'll have some immediate experience. An emotional event or charge and limited to just what I desire rather than being shaped and transformed and guided by truth. Okay? Thirdly, it's so attractive because we want a quick fix. We are an instantaneous tweeter response, microwave, got to have it, it's got to be now. Some quick, extraordinary experience that's going to change our lives. Think about Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. What an opportunity. Experience of all experiences. Here, here's the vision of Christ transformed in his glory. The cloud of heaven descending You hear this voice, this is my beloved son. What would you do with an experience like that? What would I do? Oh, Lord, if you would just give me an experience like this, how my zeal would bubble over for the rest of my life. Right? It would overwhelm me. It would transform me. It would solve every problem I have. But what did it do to Peter? He denied Christ three times. We're not to be duped by an experience that purports itself as a quick fix. We would rather take a pill than exercise. We'd rather go through painful surgery than change a lifestyle. How many of us would rather pursue an experience rather than discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness? We just heard in Sunday school our example in Christ. Fourth, We're attracted to this because we really err in our thinking. David Wells, I have a quote from his book, God in the Wasteland. People who are attracted to mysticism assume that what is hidden in God is other than what is revealed, or that it is deeper and more interesting or more spiritually nourishing. This is a false assumption. It's a grave error in our thinking that what is, what is hidden is more exceptional or engaging than what has been revealed to us. God has purposefully intended and revealed to us in his word all that is necessary for us to know and what is pertinent to the soul of man, to save him, to sanctify him, and to satisfy him. And only what is found in and through Jesus Christ as he is revealed through Scripture and the Holy Spirit. The error with the mystic is that in his mind he thinks there is something else. There's something greater, there's something better. And man, if I could just get tapped into that, this is going to make all the difference in my life. And finally, we need to look back at our history over the ages real briefly. Because we're now the children of the age in which we live. What I mean is, we look back in history, 
late 17th, 18th century, the Enlightenment period, various parts of the world, minds were stirred, mathematicians, scientists, philosophers, even deists and atheists, starting to ask and reason these big questions like, what is truth? What, what, what is real? What is, what is really real? What is, what is really good? What's bad? And how do we determine what is good? And they all strove to affirm that man is sufficient in himself to answer these questions. It was John Locke who said that man does not need an outside truth or God or require the absolutes of the word of God to answer these big philosophical questions. And that man, we think we are, we are at the center of reality. And what is true, and from this, our world in Western society has, has been plunged into rationalism. And now from that, we see our, our humanistic, our pragmatism, our postmodern world that we have now evolved into emotionalism and mysticism. The questions answered through how they feel. There's, there's no contradictions. There's no challenges. If that is what you feel, if it is true or good, if that is what you think, then that's your truth and your reality. Be careful, for we're not immune either to this. I read several articles on this and just watched some YouTube videos of different men interviewing those who profess Christ, who are professing Christians. And when they were asked specific questions about truth, they typically all fell back on what they feel and what is rational to them. But what about what God says? Feelings have, have become for us the measure of reality and truth and even goodness in this society. And it also spills over into popular evangelicalism and, and evangelism too. And now mysticism is infiltrating the church and, and purporting that we can somehow gain this immediate knowledge of God through our experiences and our emotions and our feelings rather than in biblical truth. And these are the dangers of mysticism. And this is what Paul argues powerfully against in this section in verses 18 and 19. And he begins this just like in verses 16 to 17 with another command. But he says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. And and a better rendering of this, this very rare verb in the New Testament, is to condemn with a judgment call. And the command parallels verse 16 where he says, let no one pass judgment on you with legalism in mind there. And now in this parallel command, let no one be condemning you now with mysticism in view and carrying it with a a building or a greater urgency Paul has in his argument here now with his warning. So Paul's telling the Colossian believers, don't let this one person or persons or someone from these false teachers defraud or condemn you or rob you of your prize which we know from Philippians 3.14, and later on we're going to see in Colossians 3.24, says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, the ultimate end, our eternal reward, which is Christ in heaven. But Paul further expands upon his warning against these false teachers and its dangers by giving us What he has is four modifying participial clauses here. And they're they're actually based on some of the catchphrases used by these false teachers in verses 18 and then into the first part of 19. 
In other words, Paul is telling us in these clauses that the means and the phrases used by these false teachers or teachers as their, their ascetic, mystic piety that condemned the believers though through what they were imposing on them. So we have four of these participial clauses. The first we see in verse 18, delighting in or insisting on asceticism, which we'll get into, Lord willing, next time, verses 20 to 23. But under the guise of this false humility and worship of angels, he's talking about be careful of these folks, these teachers delighting and insisting on this asceticism. Second one in verse 18, taking his stand. He's he's basically, this teacher's going on in detail about his visions. And we're going to look at each of these in detail. But verse 18, taking his stand is the second one. The third one being inflated or inflated without cause, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind in verse 18. And then the fourth one, finally in verse 19, not holding fast, not holding fast. So the first one, delighting in or insisting, actually saying being bent upon. That this man, this group of false teachers, their, their insistence, the delight of these false teachers and what they are doing and how they are expressing their being solely bent upon their rules of asceticism. These are bringing the condemnation into the members, the people of the church at Colossae. They're insisting on this false, in, in this false humility that there are certain things within their power, these ascetic practices, these methods of self-humiliation, if you will, whether through some extensive self-discipline or excessive fasting, that it is in their minds the necessary harsh treatment of their bodies in order to initiate this entry into this false worship, this false spirituality. This will somehow enable and prepare them to enter into this worship of angels. Their, their self-centered thinking is that these certain ascetic practices have an enabling power, a preparing power, a, a more spiritual enablement to allow them to fully enter into this heavenly ascent and make them worthy of receiving these visions. They're basically saying to these, these Colossian believers, because you're not following my guidelines and my regulations, you're not in this race at all. And you're unfit to know what true spirituality is. Very condescending. To really know this, you have to submit yourself to these strict means of humility in order to enter into this true worship with us. Does it sound appealing or condemning? And now this this heavenly ascent is what Paul calls out as one of their catchphrases. And this is the challenging section of these three little words, the worship of angels. There's a lot of discussion, a lot of debate on exactly what this worship of angels means what it means grammatically. It depends on whether the phrase of angels is interpreted as a subjective or an objective genitive. Now I'm going to all the depths of that. But if we looked at it objectively, what he's he's saying is that it's it's derived more from from a lexical use. It carries with it an an angelic veneration by the humans, that that the human tradition that Paul is arguing against is that they will worship of or or worship the angelic beings themselves. 
that they are seen as, as necessary objects of worship that pro- to provide this heavenly ascent. But more, more of the recent commentators have looked at this closer, and there's a lot more evidence that this is actually subjective. And what this means is that it pertains to an entering in with and alongside with the angels as joint participants in the worship of God excluding any mediatory work of Christ, but more importantly, to be alongside of and in the heavenly realm of achieving this heavenly ascent to come alongside the angels, that saying that these, these teachers have claimed to join in the angelic worship of God, that they are leaving this world and that somehow entering into this heavenly realm and prepare to receive visions of divine mysteries in the midst of this worship of the angels. But in either case, whether Paul meant it, the Spirit meant it to be objective or subjective, what's happening is the false teacher is promoting a level of worship that is equivalent to the angel's worship, that of leaving the world, that you too can rise above the normal, above the mundane of this life and enter into some higher plane of experience, of greater feeling, of greater sensation and emotional expression, some glorious level of angelic worship, and you can share in these visions that we share in. And also, in either case, the anti-idol polemic of Paul's argument remains very clear. You can see Paul's very ironic note here through this letter that he says these false teachers spend so much time in speculating about angels, celebrating the fact that the law was given by them, that they are condemning you for not worshiping with them instead of God through Jesus Christ and his revealed knowledge. That was the first participial clause. The second one we have is taking his stand in verse 18. This false teacher is absolutely committed to what he sees. He has dug his heels in. He is almost like Luther, Martin Luther not relenting in the detail of his visions going on and on about them. And whatever he's adopted, whatever he is doing to enter into this higher realm of spirituality and taking part in these visions and hearing heavenly things, this is what he's craving. This is what he's always pursuing. Digging in his heels, like I said, insisting it in others. And it is in his insistence that Paul is concerned that the Colossians will be robbed of their true prize that they'll be duped. Their true reward in Christ will be forfeited by letting this man condemn them into these rites, these initiations of mystical worship. And by condemning them through this deception, he's going to, they're going to lose their prize. They're not going to lay hold of it, much like gaining what he's promoting is gaining the, the promises of an inheritance that would escape mere mortals. But in reality, these false teachers are only able to encounter what they see in the futility of their natural minds, their unrenewed minds. Remember Paul's warning. He refers back to what, he's, what we saw in verse 9 of this chapter, that all the promises of inheritance, all that we are to gain and know, are found in him of whom the fullness of deity dwells, Christ himself. And the third participial phrase he goes into here in verse 18 being inflated, self-inflated, 
puffed up, conceited without any reason. This is all the byproduct of their fleshly, sensuous, natural mind that they can manufacture this illusion, these, these baseless assertions with no real soulish experience, only mere illusion and self-generated illusion, not anything based upon truth, upon the Word of God, nothing truly transformative, nothing of any eternal worth. It's all being inflated and puffed up, gained through their condemnation and the deception of the saints. And the more this false teacher defines himself and his spirituality based on these false experiences, the more deceived and deluded his thinking and his life becomes. And the more puffed up and conceited he becomes, the more dug in he he becomes to anyone challenging him. It's a deceptive spiral into darkness is a mind that's controlled by the flesh. And think about this. Paul's warning here is that the sensuous natural mind loves this type of conceit. It sets him apart from the crowd that he has something just a little more special, a little more spiritually important, that somehow he is again closer to God, that by his deceptive, harsh treatment of his body, his false humility provides him an entry into this greater spiritual realm of this angelic worship, which all of this in reality is futility. And especially as Paul warns later in verse 13 of their attempts through these means shows a complete inability to truly control the desires of the flesh and their sin nature. And fourth, the final participial clause in verse 18, or excuse me, first part of verse 19. Not holding fast to the head. Paul says, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. The head, of course, is Christ himself, not described or identified distinctively, but as the head of his body, the head of his church. And Paul draws now on a physiological metaphor of the body. First of the head, which of course he's speaking of Christ, and the body, which is the church. But initially, Paul gives a very powerful description of the danger of these false teachings and of the false teacher and the plight of the mystic. It's their intent to not only draw one away from Christ, but figuratively he's saying that they are guilty of severing themselves. It is like a self-decapitation. Not holding fast to the head, which is Christ, he cuts himself off by going on with his promotion of this false higher-level angelic worship, puffed up and conceited in his own mind with a false sense of humility, going on and on about his visions, so much that he won't budge from his path. He's, he's decapitating himself from the body, from the only source of true spiritual growth based on truth and an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. He has, he has taken himself from the head. He has severed himself from Christ. It, it can be pictured using the same physiological metaphor as, as if this teacher is an arm, and he decided he no longer wants to be attached to the head or the body, thinking he can be self-sustaining. It's ludicrous. And if this is true, then what Paul is telling us is of paramount importance. 
we must hold fast to the head. For anyone, for any of us to grow in true holiness, in true godliness, in true spirituality, we must put away any legalism, any of those performance acceptance metrics I talked about last time, and we must put away mysticism in order to know God just through our feelings and our experiences, and put away any asceticism, which we'll look at, but, but to hold fast to the head, to Christ, to delight in him as he has laid hold of us. But Paul goes into this great physiological metaphor to give us insight into how the function of the body of Christ as being attached to the head, what does that look like? How are we being held together? He's describing for us basic physical bodybuilding blocks of our, from our anatomy. You might remember this in biology class. Some of you younger folks, you'll, you'll learn this in biology class. We have muscles. We have bones, we have skeletal structure, muscular structure. We are being held together at a skeletal level by the joints and the bones, uniquely fit, perfectly fit, all the wonders of evolution, sarcasm, sorry, (laughs) divinely created. How else could that happen? But at the skeletal level, each of these bones are supported by ligaments. That's how they're supported to one another, and our muscles are attached to our bones and their support through the tendons. And all of this is empowered. It is, it is energized by the head. Our head, the wonders of creation and God-ordained methods, gives those electro-neuromuscular directives that tells my hand to move, you know, voluntary, involuntary. This is truly amazing. But Paul's bringing to light here a great spiritual reality in our relationship The head, the body, the body designed to obey and grow on everything that's given from the head. And what Paul is showing us here is in the physical realm is very true in our spiritual realm. The spiritual body being that of the church, where where collectively the church, we are sovereignly knit together, just like joints and ligaments and tendons, muscular, skeletal structures, bound by the Spirit of God through the headship of Christ. We're not randomly a gabagoo that came together and strapped by tape and glue, but we are uniquely fit together. We're designed to function cooperatively, receiving spiritual power, receiving its directives, its nourishment, its knowledge from the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not move, live, or have our being or grow spiritually apart from him. He is the Lord over all life and the strength of the body, both in the physical realm and in the spiritual realm. He is, in a metaphorical sense, that spiritual electroneuromuscular work that guides the body. It directs his body. And it's through the knowledge of him and the power of him and the constraint of his love that we live and move and function in the body of Christ. So it's true that our proper moving and functioning is growth and a growth which is, as Paul says, from God. But what does this look like? Well, if you remember remember back in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Paul describes it as a tree being rooted, an edifice being built up. As you were taught, as you were instructed in knowledge to guide and guard our affections, to be abounding in thanksgiving, 
looking to the head who is Jesus Christ, who has provided all the means necessary by which we are to hold fast. There is nothing astounding. There is nothing exceptional or overly sensational about this. Nothing that some mystical televangelist would broadcast about. But the head has provided the means by which we are to hold fast to him. And we are to hold fast to him through what he has revealed to us in Scripture by faith. We are to hold fast to the faith for once all passed down to us individually, in families, and in the church. And we are fed through the word of God as we hold fast and are faithful to Christ and to his word. And then our faith is strengthened. It is nourished. And we will grow because this is how we, are, we hold fast to the head. We grow up in that growth which is from God. So what is the application for us today in all of this examination of mysticism? Well, to the one who is committed to experiences and feelings and emotions, who believes that through the foundation of mysticism that you can somehow attain to God in this life through just your experience, J.I. Packer gives a very good quote here in this application where he talks about three types of evangelicals. He says, Those whom I call restless experientialists are a familiar breed, so much so that observers are sometimes tempted to divine evangelicalism in terms of them because it is so commonplace. Their outlook is one of valuing of strong feelings Note, not affections. About deep thoughts, they have little taste for solid study, little taste for disciplined meditation, and little taste for unspectacular hard work in their callings and in their prayers. In their restlessness, these exuberant ones become uncritically credulous, reasoning that the more odd and striking an experience must be the more divine, the more supernatural, and the more spiritual. They have fallen victim to a form of worldliness, a man-centered, anti-rational individualism. Ponder what Paul says in these verses of what it really means to grow in Christ. To take full advantage of all the means of His grace that He has granted to us, holding firm to this unshakable foundation that God himself has spoken through the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has revealed to us, given to us everything we need for godliness. Second application is to the believer that is laboring and striving to grow in godliness. To hold fast to the head when we do this, we will experience over time maturity in Christ. We will know that grace upon grace, that glory to glory, the means by which the head, Christ, has provided for our spiritual growth, the means through which the Holy Spirit works and functions in our lives, and the result is maturity in Christ. The result is stability in Christ. The result is assurance in Christ. A full head of knowledge and a full heart of affection for God, for the Lord, 
for His Word and His Spirit's work and for the saints of God. However, one with a full head and an empty heart is a recipe for disaster. And one with a full heart and an empty head is a great cause of concern. But to unbelievers, anyone here wondering, what are you talking about? What is all this mystical talk about angelic worship and physical bodies and spiritual bodies? Maybe perplexing. There is a head and a body that is the church, and Jesus Christ is its Lord. There is only one means of salvation that we must be united to this head. We must become one, a member of this body of Christ, and this is only possible by two means, through two bonds that only Christ himself provides. Christ, by the Holy Spirit, must take hold of you in order to unite you to himself. And we are then able to hold on to him by faith. It is by virtue of these two things that unite us with Christ and everything that Christ accomplished in his life, in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection is applied to those that are one with him. All of his is mine. And all my sin has been judged. The penalty and the ransom for my sin has been paid in full upon his cross. In Christ, I am now clothed with his righteousness and in the Father's sight. And as one with Christ, I am now a part of this adopted family of God. I now have a status and all the blessings of sonship are mine through his union. With the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, I have this pledge, this seal upon me that I am kept by Him until the final day of redemption. I have this pledge that all things, all these things, all the blessings, all the privileges that are now mine in Christ, I know that there is a day coming when the will will be mine fully in Christ, when they will be fully mine in Christ, when I will enter into and fully enjoy what is mine now because of my union in Christ, seated with Him in the heavenly places, blessed with all the spiritual blessings in Christ, in His body, united by His Spirit, held to by faith, I have this assurance that He will make good on everything He has accomplished and purchased for me and all that He has promised to me. For the unbeliever, this can be yours. You come to Him by faith. Come to Him in prayer, seeking His forgiveness, seeking His life. Let's pray. Father, we seek Your blessing upon Your Word and that Your Holy Spirit would accompany Your Word. May it be with power in the lives and souls of all who are here with us today. Father, we praise You and we thank You. Oh Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the great work of redemption. All that he has accomplished on the cross of Calvary. And we praise you for all the glorious accomplishments and the power of your gospel. It's power to save all those who believe, who put their faith and trust in Christ, who turn from their sin, who rest in him and trust in him as Lord and as Savior. Father, take what we have heard and bring understanding, Father. Bring illumination, bring wisdom. 
We pray that you will bring a, a softened heart where there has been a hardened heart. We pray, Father, that you would bring a broken will where there's been a stubborn will. Lord, we ask all this for the glory, your glory alone. And may it be for the furtherance of your kingdom and to the praise and the honor of Jesus Christ, the righteous. Amen.